Well, good morning. Welcome to Winter Break Edition of Rich Top Church. Happy New Year. It's the first Sunday of 2024, and um, we are doing a little three-week sermon mini-series um, to get the new year kicked off, and we're basically going back to some of the basics, and a lot of this is in our church covenant. So in a f- few weeks, we'll, we'll be standing, reaffirming our church covenant, and so we're going through uh, the beliefs and practices that we'll see uh, in that covenant. And last week, we started with a look at what's often called the Great Commission, so Matthew 28, uh, where Jesus tells his followers, I want you to make more followers, or I want you to make more apprentices uh, of Jesus. And that this living out of the Christian life is literally following uh, Jesus, uh, which is one thing for a flesh and blood Jesus to say uh, to his disciples standing there right before him. But what does that mean when he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's no longer walking around on the planet? Uh, that said, uh, he is saying these things to the disciples just before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. So he is giving them insight into how we follow Jesus going forward without a flesh and blood of Jesus walking around on the planet. My summary of those basics of how we do that is right belief and practice. It's not new to me, but that's how I summarized it. Okay, Right beliefs and right practices. You see that in the Great Commission. You see the belief part when he says, I baptize you, or you want to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so this, this is establishing, establishing them in the God who is their Savior, who is uh, everything, right? And that, that, that is right belief. But then there's also right practice. He says, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. So there's things to believe, and then there's things to do. And this is what it means to follow Jesus, this right belief and these right practices. And these two things are intimately linked with each other, right belief and right practice. I was thinking about the sermon last week, and I, w- I was like, how, how do I illustrate this interrelated nature of beliefs and practices? And this is what I came up with. It's limited, but uh, this is what my kind of twisted brain uh, was thinking this week. And I was thinking about the, dip- the, the interrelation between the operating system of your phone and the apps that run on the operating system, Okay. Uh, for some of you, you're going to like, I don't know what he's talking about. Others, you're like, I get it. So the operating system uh, is running everything that's on your phone, right? And for uh, iPhone users, uh, it's the iOS, right? It's the uh, i operating system. That's what OS means. For Android users, it's Android OS. And everything that's downloaded on that phone must comply to and be run by the OS, the operating system of your phone. Think of OS for Christians as the gospel, right? This is the operating system. It is in the, in the background. It's in the foreground of what it means to be a Christian. And the gospel is what God did through Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension, and his eventual return. And if we get the operating system wrong, everything else is wrong, right? This is why... Uh, You know, iPhone's always rolling out uh, an update, right? They're debugging the operating system because if the operating system doesn't run right, everything else runs wrong. And so for the church, getting the operating system 
right. It's incredibly important. And this is why we want to renew the church continually, rediscovering not a new operating system, but the true operating system, right, that has been passed on throughout the ages. Then think of practices like apps running on the operating system. Apps are intimately connected to the operating system, but they are not the same thing as the operating system. And with the use of that operating system, apps can do some pretty amazing things. Without the OS, the app is completely worthless. Now, not only are apps intimately connected with the operating system, but they're also connected to each other. My apps are always asking me for permission to talk to other apps. I always say no, because I don't want them data mining all of my data. But for disciples, we want to say yes, that the practices of the Christian faith are interrelated. They're talking to each other, so to speak. And so the right practices of the church, intimately connected to the right belief that is the gospel, and in that way, they're able to enhance each other as they run on that system. One of the little uh, pictures that we've been looking at that is a, a, an attempt to uh, summarize the basic, right, basic practices uh, is this little picture. And I've, I've debugged it a bit, updated it, if you will. Um, and so at the core of it, you have the worship Right? This is the worship practice. This is the worship of Jesus. And the only way that worship is accurate worship is if the operating system is working correctly, right? You, that you understand the gospel. But as, as that gospel is poured into this worship life of the church, it fires up everything else. Right? It fires up your interaction with the word and with prayer and with mission and with fellowship. But those things also, they are directed back into the worship of Jesus the more you or in the Word, the more you worship Jesus, the more you pray, the more you worship Jesus, the more you're on mission, you worship Jesus, the more you're in fellowship with other believers, you worship Jesus. Right? And so this is the basics of the beliefs and the practices of, I think, the church in general, but Ridgetop Church. And when we look at our, uh, our church covenant, again, you'll see those things in that church covenant. Now, um, Jesus doesn't use an iPhone as his illustration um, because he was teaching in the first century. But he does have an illustration. He has lots of illustrations uh, to explain some of these realities. But one that's one of my favorites, and I, I think a very crucial uh, illustration of what it means to be a follower of Christ, is his illustration of the vine and the branches. And this is what you just heard read from John chapter 15. John chapter 15 is a larger section of Jesus' teaching that's often called the Upper Room Discourse. It's called that because most of it, or all of it, was given on the night before Jesus' death, and a lot of that night was spent in, quote, the Upper Room, where he washed their feet and gave them uh, the first Lord's Supper. This Upper Room Discourse, as in John 14 to John 17, is Jesus orienting his disciples into a new way of following him. He is training them to follow him without a flesh and blood Jesus walking around on the planet. And the way he's doing that is helping them to understand, via the work of the Holy Spirit, their right belief and right practice. And he wants them to teach others to do the same. So today we're going to take a look at this John 15, 1 through 8. There's more to it in that chapter, but 
these verses will help us to understand this interplay between the beliefs and the practices. So three things we want to take a look at. One is the nature of following Jesus, the means of following Jesus, and the results of following Jesus. Right? The nature of it, the means of it, and the results of following Jesus. So the nature of following Jesus. In one word, I would describe that as connectedness. Right? This is the nature of following Jesus. So verses 1 through 6, I'll read them again. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So there's three characters in the parable. The first is the true vine. The true vine is Jesus. He's the source of everything for the branches. If there was no vine, there would be no branches, much less healthy ones. Therefore, the more connected the branches are with the vine, the healthier the branch. The second per, uh, kind of character in this parable is the vine dresser or that, the gardener who works on the vines. The vine dresser is God the Father. He displays a pervasive and life-giving authority over the entire vineyard. He's overseeing the plant so closely that he's pruning every little branch as needed. This is not a kind of a 5,000-foot flyover. He's involved intimately with this plant, down to its smallest of branches. And it concentrates on just one activity of a gardener, which is pruning. There's obviously a lot of other activities of, of weeding and fertilizing and watering. And, but, but Jesus, for the, for the purpose of this illustration, he hones in on pruning. Now, pruning is a pretty important part of gardening. I'm not a gardener, but I, I, I've been told by those who do garden that to have healthy plants and healthy branches and healthy fruit, you got to do a lot of pruning. Uh, this was brought to my attention when uh, the previous church where, where we were, we purchased a building that had not had any maintenance for 10 years, including the bushes out in front of the church. And so we were trying to like trim these bushes up, and they just looked horrible. They were just brown and, and like half green, half brown, and they, were, they just looked terrible. And we had a, a student that was getting a degree in horticulture. And uh, I was like, what do I do with these bushes? And he's like, just cut them down to a nub. I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, those kind will grow right back. So we, we went out. We, I, I got a chainsaw from somebody. And we, I mean, took it down to the nub. And I thought, I have certainly killed these bushes. And they came back, and they were beautiful. 
The, the growth was so fresh and green and gorgeous, and, and, and we trimmed them up, and, and, and they looked better than they probably had ever <laughs> looked. And so this idea of, of pruning is pretty prevalent in the understanding of gardening and evidently a helpful illustration to understand our relationship with uh, God. Now, what, is it, what, what does it mean? And I, I think sometimes we can say, well, it must mean a lot of pain, which, which I think pruning uh, that God does in our lives often does include pain. But I think most of all, he's pointing to fruitfulness. He's saying that God, the gardener, is very concerned about the fruitfulness of all the branches. And he's going to do whatever it takes as the gardener to make sure that those branches are fruitful. So we've got both God the Son and God the Father incredibly connected to each other and these branches. And that brings us to the third sort of character in the parable. Now the branches are the followers of Jesus. His followers share life-giving connection with Jesus, sometimes called union with Christ or being in Christ. And they're under the life-giving care of the gardener, of God the Father. The primary thing, the primary thing for a branch to do, stay connected to the vine. I repeat, the primary thing for a branch to do is stay connected to the vine. Disconnected from Jesus, there's unfruitfulness and unhealth, right? The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. These are all pictures of of unfruitfulness and unhealth. But if connected to Jesus, there is fruitfulness and health. Right? It's very simple. It's a very simple parable, which is one of the beautiful things about parables. They're very simple and straightforward. Right? He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And so he's saying, if you stay connected, you abide in the true vine, Jesus, you will be healthy and you will bear much fruit. So these branches are being commanded to stay connected or to, to abide in the vine. He's literally saying, abide in me. It's, it's a command. Uh, this is where the analogy breaks down just a bit, as all analogies do. The branches, you know, typical branches, they can't obey commands. You can't tell branches, hey, stay connected uh, to the vine. But we're not talking about branches. Right? We're, t- we're talking about followers of Jesus. And they're being commanded to stay connected to Jesus. Now, in this beautiful parable, there is... Uh, this display of belief and practice. There's this interconnectedness between these beliefs, these, these things that are true, that must be received by faith, but also practices, things we do in light of these things that we believe. The belief being portrayed here is that Christians, as a gift of grace, have entered into a union with God. That's what's true. That's what is to be believed. And that is through faith in the Son, what Christ has done in his death, burial, resurrection. As, we, as when we believe that, we're reconnected with God because our sin has been forgiven 
and we've been reconciled with the one who made us. Um, part of that is, is facilitated by the Holy Spirit, right? And so this, this parable is tucked into the upper, upper room discourse, which is mostly about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he's, he's, he's showing us, here's how you follow me when I'm not here in flesh and blood walking around on the planet. So as Christians, so far we're being told to live into this belief that we're connected to God in Christ. Now, what does it mean to abide, right? We're hearing, okay, we need to do this practice of abiding. What even is it, right? And so this is the second part, the means of abiding, the means of following Jesus. And it's pretty simple. And in a word, it's words, right? The means of abiding, the means of following Jesus is words. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's, he's getting at some of the, the basic practices of being a Christian. Two practices, in fact. Each involves words. Words from God to the Christ follower and words from the Christ follower back to God, right? Words to us and words back to God. So the first means is of abiding in the words here of Jesus, right? He says something similar back in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, right? So he's talking to Christians. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, the same kind of verbiage where he's saying abiding in Jesus is abiding in his word. But what are his words? His words are the scripture, Old and New Testament. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I know that in part from Luke 24. Um, this is post-resurrection. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's spending 40 days with his disciples. Again, he is coaching them up, teaching them, training them, equipping them to follow him after he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he sends the Holy Spirit. He says to them, 20, Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's talking about Old Testament there. And said to them, Thus is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance from the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. There's the gospel, right? You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There Jesus is affirming that the Old Testament includes his words. The Old Testament is about Jesus. He's also telling the apostles, you're going to be my witnesses, right? You're going to verbally attest to who Jesus is, what he's done, and the implications of that. And they're not only going to say it with their mouths, they're going to say it with their pen. They're going to write it down. And this is what we have in the New Testament. And so the scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, 
are those words. I hear this from um, some professing Christians who sometimes say, well, I'm a, I'm a red-letter Christian. What they mean by that is certain Bibles have uh, the, the words of Jesus in the Gospels in red letters. And they say, well, I only, I'll only concern myself with what Jesus said in the red letters. And that is not what Jesus taught his disciples to do. He actually taught them to take seriously the Old Testament and the New Testament that was given to us by the apostles. So how is it that we let the words of Jesus, that is the scripture, abide in us? I I think for the original hearers, that was easier for them to understand than most of us. These uh, Jewish men that are hearing this, they, they are hearing this as those who have been taught how to meditate on Scripture. The Old Testament is full of commands about meditating on Scripture, abiding in Scripture. Um, we're all meditating on something. Your, your mind is never turned off. I mean, some of you might claim that, but I'm telling you, your mind is dwelling on something consistently and deeply over time. You're thinking about that thing or that person when you wake up and when you're in the shower and when you're in the car and you're commuting somewhere or, or during a daydreaming session at work. I know none of you daydream at work or in class, but if you were to, this is the thing that you're meditating on, you're dwelling on, and when you lay your head down at night, that thing that you're thinking about that you, you're trying to get to sleep but you can't stop, this is what you're meditating on. This is what you're abiding in, right? And Jesus is saying if you want to experience the life-giving connection with Jesus, you're going to need to abide in his words. You're going to need to wake up in the morning thinking about his words, dwelling on his words in the shower, dwelling on his words as you commute to work or class, dwelling on his words when you're daydreaming in work or class, dwelling on his words as you put your head down on the pillow at night. This is the the abiding in his words, which is abiding in Jesus, or at least in part. Um, I use this uh, little navigator hand that uh, talks about the the ways that we take in, or a Christian takes in the word, right? Uh, you, You hear the word, you read the word, you study the word, you memorize the word. And all of these four fingers here puts enough word in your mind in order to then abide in it, to meditate on it, to dwell on it. If you're just taking it in, a, a, you know, on Sunday morning and that's it, like, like you're probably not going to be able to meditate, to dwell on, to abide in uh, Jesus' words. But it, it, being a part of those kinds of practices of hear, read, study, memorize, that helps us to get to that place where we're actually meditating uh, on his words. The second means of abiding that Jesus mentions here, and there, there are many. I, I, I don't want to act like there's only two, but, but these are the ones he mentions, and I think they're primary, is our words back to God. We usually call this prayer. Again, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask. Right? That's, that's words we are uttering back to God. This connectedness that we experience with Jesus is two-way. God the Father speaking to us through the Spirit-inspired, Spirit-illuminated scriptures that all point to God the Son. 
And as we who are then informed by those words, we're able to talk back to God, having been transformed by those words. You can think of it as a conversation. This is, to some degree, what you do with other people, right? If, if you don't listen to the words that the person that's in front of you is saying, and then say something back that's somewhat informed by the words that they just gave you, you are not going to have much of a conversation. And you've experienced this, where you've said something, and then the person says something back, and you're like, they didn't hear one word I said. And you usually just walk away at that point. And you're like, have a nice day. And you go find somebody that actually listened to you, right? Now, conversation with God, obviously, on a, on a different level. But there's some similarities here. We're, we want to listen to God's words, and then we pray those words back to him. Jesus speaks to a petitionary prayer that is asking for things here, which is not the only thing that you can, only way you can pray, right? There's a lot of other ways you can pray, but this one seems to be the most natural, right? Asking God for things that we need. And Jesus is saying we should ask God for the things that we need. He's describing this connectedness uh, with God that has resulted from ongoing meditation on Scripture, such that we not only have a sense of who God is and what He's doing, but what God wants in our lives, in the lives of those around us, in the lives of the people in our church. And so we're praying these Scripture-informed prayers back to God in such a way that, of course, He's going to say yes, right? It's, it's, it's been informed by the words of God. Now, this is always a work in progress, uh, are we going to get to some you know, higher plane where we're like, man, every prayer I pray, God says yes to it every time because I'm so spiritual now and I've read all the Bible. And No, it's always going to be a work in progress. But as you meditate and dwell on and abide in the words of, of, of Christ, right, you're going to be able to pray those words back in ways that's going to make your, your prayer life that much more fruitful because it's an actual conversation with God. One, again, one of the ways to think about this is praying God's word back to him. Now, some of you may be familiar with the acrostic acts, uh, which is a little, little framework that, that is oftentimes helpful to, to, to walk through as you're praying to, to adore and praise God and then confess sin and then thank God for the things he, he's, he's given you and thank God for the gospel. And, and then supplication, which is a fancy word for petitionary prayer, right? I think, I think it's... Incredibly helpful. Um, I think it's even more helpful when you go through that framework informed by a particular passage of Scripture. So let's say you're reading the Bible, you're reading John 15, 1 through 8, and now you're going to use this framework and you're going to pray back to God. And you're not just going to pray in a vacuum, you're going to actually pray based on Acts or, uh, John 15. And it might sound something like this. So in adoration, you say, I praise you, God, because you who are infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, are a God who comes near, who pursues relationship with human beings like me. It makes a way for me to have that through Scripture and prayer. I confess to you that I sometimes lack the appetite for such connection. I ignore the glorious union that has been given to me in your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. I thank you for making a way for me to know the God who made me 
and that you are constantly giving me opportunities to grow in my relationship with you. God, help me to abide in you through my prayerful meditation on Scripture. Help me to put away distractions and place my focus wholly on you and your word to me. Help each person at Ridgetop Church to do the same, such that we all get more of you this year as individuals and as a church. Amen. And so using Scripture to, to inform the way that you pray, to pray God's words back to him. Now, what does this all result in, this abiding in his words and, and, and praying those words back? It results in fruit. Um, he says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So he says, by this. By, by this? What is this? By abiding. By abiding. By abiding in God's word. By praying his word back to him. It results in these things. The Father being glorified. Right? Attention being given to God and who he really is. This is what we're built for, right? We were built to be image bearers, to image back to God who he is because we're created in his image. By abiding in Jesus, we're then given the ability to image back to God who he is, to give glory to God. It's the fruit of bearing much fruit, right? He says much fruit, not just fruit, but much fruit. Branches do what branches are supposed to do. Branches are supposed to, branches of, of a vineyard, right, are supposed to actually produce fruit. Except here he's saying they're producing supernatural fruit. We love and serve and work and give and move toward practical and spiritual needs of others. And we do it at a level we could have never done in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own power. We do it via the connection that we have with Jesus. And so it is much fruit. Later in the chapter, he will say, fruit that will last. It's not just some temporary fruit. It's actually fruit that's going to last for eternity. That's what's going on in here. That's what's going on in your lives. This opportunity to abide in Jesus such that you're giving glory to the Father, you're bearing this much fruit, fruit that will last. And then thirdly, he says, it gives proof that you're Jesus' disciple. That those truly connected to the true vine produce good fruit, produce much fruit. And that fruit essentially is looking like Jesus. You're looking like Jesus. You're, you're looking like uh, who you were made to look like. It doesn't earn your identity as a disciple. It merely proves it. It doesn't earn it. It proves it. That this fruit that's being born out of your life is because of the identity you've been given by grace and through faith. The fruit is secondary. It's a secondary result of what is primary. What's primary, we said earlier, is that we abide in Jesus. And the secondary result is bearing this much fruit, this fruit that will last. This is also a principle in gardening. Right? You really don't have direct control over the fruit production of your plant. You have indirect control. 
And, and so you're working on the soil and you're working on the plant and you're trying to do whatever you can to, to create the right environment so that fruit will be born. And so the, the spiritual life is like this where it, we don't have direct control over whatever fruit we hope to see in our lives, but we can abide in the vine. That is primary. And as we do that, through word and prayer, he's going to produce much fruit. Sometimes I find myself talking to a person who will say, I'm exhausted by church, or I'm exhausted by the Christian faith. And sometimes I'm that person (laughs) saying, man, I'm just exhausted with church activity and uh, Christian faith. Um, the The remedy to that? Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. This is an ongoing struggle for every Christian because our old default is not to abide in Jesus. And so we can so easily return to abiding in other things or abiding in other people. But if we abide in him, he will produce good fruit. He will produce fruit that will last. Abiding is primary, and it's not just something that we practice as individuals. It's something we practice as a community. We're abiding in Jesus right now. Well done. Glad you're here, right? You, you can't just do this by yourself. You, you also do this in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ, which is why being a part of a local church is so important. If you're going to get all that Jesus has for you in that abiding relationship, you're going to want to be a part of a, of a local body in an ongoing way. And this is another means, and we'll talk about this next week. It's another means that Jesus has given us for abiding in him. And so the, the, the most important thing that you could resolve to do in 2024 is to abide in Jesus. To abide in Jesus. To abide in his words and prayerfully speak those words back to God in prayer. I know that sounds basic, and it is. But there's, there's nothing more important, nothing more primary for us as individual Christ followers, but also as a church to abide in Jesus. We're going to do our best to help cultivate that. We're going to gather for Sunday morning worship. Right? We're, gonna, we're not just going to do that to, to have a social gathering or go through some rituals. We actually are praying and working toward seeing Christ abide with us in this moment of, of worship. When we sing, when we hear the word read, and we pray, and we preach, and we take the bread and the cup. These are all means of abiding with Jesus. We're going to offer small groups. Why are we doing that? Well, so you can abide in Jesus. And you need community to do that. Uh, We're going to offer discipleship groups, which are uh, more of a training and equipping intentionally to teach you the practices and the beliefs of the Christian faith. And these are all going to help tremendously. But at the end of the day, it really requires you to approach those things as one who wants to abide in Jesus. And this, this, is, this is some examples of what I'm talking about. So, so we're doing Sunday morning. What would be a way to approach Sunday morning that would help you abide in Jesus? Well, I mean, one way would be to either the night before uh, on Saturday night or 
Get up early on Sunday, a little bit earlier, read the passage that's going to be preached on. Pray for yourself, for our church, for me, for whoever's preaching. Praying for Noah, praying for the musicians, praying that, that Christ would meet us in that moment. Then reflecting back on what you heard after the fact, prayerfully. This, this is what people that are serious about abiding, this is the kind of lifestyle that they live. They, they have these rhythms built in that uh, are part of their experience of the life of the church. Same thing can be done with small group, right? You're preparing for small group. You Maybe your group's on a Tuesday night, and you're, so you're reading the passage that's going to be discussed beforehand. You're praying for yourself. You're praying for the people in your group by name. You're preparing yourself. You're coming into the small group experience. You're anticipating that Jesus is going to meet you in that small group experience. Then when you come out of it, you're reflecting back on it. And not, it doesn't have to be hours and hours and hours. It's like a few minutes of just reflecting back on. What did, what did Jesus do in that time? This, this, is, this is the life of one who is abiding. And then, of course, daily devotional reading of Scripture, some kind of encounter with God through his word and praying those words back to him on a consistent basis. Again, it doesn't have to be hours and hours. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. But just this consistent uh, abiding in Jesus. And then I find helpful at the end of the day, just kind of looking back over the day, asking the Lord to forgive me, ways that I've sinned against him and others over the course of the day, thinking about what, what, what did God do, thanking him for that, thinking about what did I miss, <laughs> what was God doing that I totally just like blind to, asking him to help me the, the following day. Right? And it's just a couple of minutes, honestly. I probably should spend more time doing this, but it's been, as I get, put my book down before I, I'm going I'm to fall asleep, I have this little few minutes where I think back on the day and I think about the day ahead and then I fall off to sleep. This is, this is all kind of practices right, of abiding in Jesus. And the primary motivator is Jesus. <laughs> I don't want you to come away with a list to check off. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do this and this and this. The, the primary motivator for leaning in to this kind of thing is, is Jesus. That, that's why, you know, in the five devotion schematic that we put up there a moment ago, what's at the center? It's the worship of Jesus, right? It, it's, it's because of him, who he is, what he's done. And, we, and out of our worship for him, we want to move toward prayer and the word and fellowship and mission. What, what's interesting in this, this, this John 15 is, is where this is placed in Jesus' teaching ministry. It's the night before his death. Right? He knows the only way that that teaching is going to be true, that he can say to his followers that you can abide in me, as if he goes to the cross the next day. And he makes a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled to God the Father through our belief in God the Son by the power of the Spirit. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. Right? Part of what this table represents is that we've been reconciled to God. We have a connection to God. We have a fellowship with God. Notice what's on the table. There's bread, right? Jesus took bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
He's saying there's no way you're going to be spiritually uh, fed and nourished and kept alive if I don't give you the bread of my body broken on the cross that very next day. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He speaks of a new covenant, a new covenant community. That this connectedness is not just between the Christian and God in Christ, although it is, but it's also a spiritual connection with brothers and sisters in the church. And so we we have this experience of abiding both individually but also communally. And this is partly what we're celebrating when we come to this table. If if you uh, come in this room and you've not yet put your faith in the Christ that I've been talking about, I want to encourage you to do that. That Christ died for your sins. <laughs> he didn't just do that to make a payment for them, although that is part of it. He, he died so that we could be reconnected with God. And this is the only way that that can happen. is through faith in what Christ did for us. But when we do that, then what is true is that we have union with Christ. And now we get to lean into that union day in, day out, as Christ followers, through these practices that we've talked about today and we'll talk about again next week. And we'll continue to hopefully equip uh, all of us in doing this more and more. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this relationship that we've been given with you. It, it's so mind-blowing when we really think about it. <laughs> that the God who, who made us, the God who created all things, has made a way for us to be in relationship with you. Thank you for that. Thank you that you offered your son as a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven and brought into that relationship. God, we remember that as we take this bread and cup. God, we pray that you would bless this, bless this time that we have to commune with you and with each other. And uh, God, that you would help us, Lord, to, to learn how to abide in even greater ways this year. I pray that we'd look back on 2024 and we would uh, see greater and greater abiding in the true vine and uh, that you would help us to do that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are a Christ follower,